So uh, this week on the Superstructure podcast, we wanted to welcome our second ever guest, Upping the Ante. This is our friend Maite Salazar. Uh, They are running for Congress. Can you tell us a little bit about your race and about your district and also about who you are? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So my name is uh, Maite Salazar, and I am here in Kansas City, Missouri, the beautiful uh, very humid Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> and uh, so I am running to represent the uh, the 5th District of Missouri, which is uh, actually a rather large district. So we have a good combination of rural and urban areas of our district. And we have about 12 languages that are spoken here. We have so many different nationalities and uh, just a really really diverse and art-filled, uh, amazing district that I love. So uh, we are basically Kansas City, uh, Missouri, from north to south, and then uh, we stretch out all the way to Arrow Rock National Park, which is about two and a half hour, two two and a half hours away from Kansas City proper. So uh, geographically, it's a really large district, and we have a lot of really amazing farmers and different people, obviously living in between the urban and rural areas. So yeah, it's it's really diverse, and and uh, it's home. I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, have the last few weeks been going? It seems like your campaign has from the beginning, always focused on abolishing ICE. I want to shout out to you for getting a detention center closed in your district during the pandemic before you were even elected, (laughs) which is pretty awesome. Um, But, uh, you know, I feel like a campaign that has already been kind of talking in, you know, somewhat abolitionist framework is especially well suited to this particular moment. But how's that been? Yeah, so um, we've had uh, quite a lot of... um of goings on in the past few weeks. Sorry, hold on, my dog just totally jumped on the couch and is making every noise possible. <laughs> Kansas City um, is is a really racially divided city, and it was actually planned that way by a man named J.C. Nichols, who was a prominent real estate developer uh, here in Kansas City in the late 20s through the 40s. And so he created a, a red line on what uh, on a street that we call Troost Avenue. And Troost is actually named after Benoist Troost, who is a slave uh, owner, uh, that owned a lot of plantation land here in Kansas City back in the day. And so uh, basically, if you were to live in a, a J.C. Nichols development, you couldn't be uh, black, Mexican, or Jewish. And so it was for white, basically Catholic people only. And the the neighborhoods still reflect that uh, racial divide uh, incredibly. If you look at home property values from uh, the west side of Troost, which is the quote-unquote white side, uh, compared to the east side of Troost, where I live and is the quote-unquote uh, you know melanated side, we have uh, four times disparity. You know, a, a house that sells for two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars, four streets away, will sell for forty thousand dollars. Right. So it's um, it's something that's affected our city uh, for you know a century now, and uh, we're finally starting. We actually just took down the name uh, off of J C Nichols Parkway. And they're going to be renaming that to just Mill Creek Parkway. So it's no longer uh, honoring that person who created such a huge racial divide in our city. Um, But, you know, tensions here are really high. There's a lot of violence in Kansas City. There's a lot of police brutality in Kansas City. Uh, I have friends that have been, you know, targeted by the police who've been followed home and, you know, had cards left from the police, you know, waiting for them when they got home. 
And so here for the first few days, it was really contentious. So I was out almost every night. At the time, I I was still working full time. So I would get off at 10 and then just like race straight down to where everything was happening and just start live streaming. Right. So, you know, I I did see tear gas being used, you know, rubber bullets being shot, um, you know, people being arrested in horrific ways, little little girls being arrested one night. Um, there were two little girls dancing in the street and they just like drag arrested them. And uh, so our mayor has been trying to do a lot of kind of like negotiating, I guess is the best way to put this. So he says that like the police are no longer allowed to use tear gas and pepper spray because we found out they were using tear gas and pepper spray that expired a decade ago. So who knows what those chemicals have done inside of those cans for as long as they've been sitting. I mean, it's not like they test these things to make sure that they're not going to actually poison you right but then three days ago one of my friends who's that frequent target of the police he was tear gas and pepper sprayed and um he has epilepsy so he actually suffered from several epileptic seizures and they know he has epilepsy so it's like they specifically tried to trigger him to have these attacks jesus christ and so our police department is really militarized and i don't think that people really realized how militarized it was until the protest started. Then they saw the armored vehicles. They saw the LRAD system. They saw the rubber bullets. They saw, you know, the tear gas canisters and all these things that you kind of had just heard about from other other locales that were having protests. All of a sudden, it became very real to Kansas City. And so there's been like a huge resurgence in defunding the police and uh, in abolition work and I'm really grateful that here in Kansas City, we have some amazing groups that have been doing this work uh, for years and are continuing to do this work. And finally, now we're actually starting to get some attention from, you know, people who aren't either in the immediate affected circle or the immediate activist circle. So it's been a trying time. It's been a, a confusing and traumatic time for a lot of people. And I feel like we're starting to make some really good steps here in the district. So I I am happy for that. And we actually, in one of our more rural areas in Marshall, Missouri, they had their own Black Lives Matter protest, which was amazing. And I was uh, so happy to see that because we had them in Marshall, which is almost at the uh, farthest end of the district. And we had them in Kansas City. So it was like the entire district was uniting and it was really great. It's amazing. Quite the last few weeks, um, there's something that you said that sort of caught my eye in the sense of thinking about the symbolism of the parkway and how Kansas City has been cleaved in, in two in that way. And as it sort of links up to the broader sort of fight that's going on with these protests around statues and in general symbols of white supremacy that have endured over the years and have been specifically erected. And a part of your fight there, and not to make it just about you, but the fight of the movement in Kansas City was, like you suggested, to rename the uh, the parkway and, and not hold up this individual who is so responsible for segregating Kansas City. And it reminded me of a sort of common refrain that I see in the discourse that tries to sort of sever the fight over symbols as some sort of superstructure or ephemera versus like the material fight over abolition and policing. And there's this imagination that they're cut in half and there's a material fight and then there's this symbolic fight that doesn't really mean much. 
I was wondering if you could maybe reflect on that and articulate why the symbolic fight, at least on my reading, and I'd be wondering if if you'd agree, is just as necessary to have. And we don't have to be picking fights according to this sort of arbitrary binary separation in this way. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you about that. Um, Actually, our statue of uh, Andrew Jackson that's in front of the courthouse is is, uh, covered in a plastic bag right now, (laughs) a black plastic (laughs) bag. Um, (laughs) I was like, why don't we just take him off and leave the horse, you know? Um, (laughs) (laughs) We do need more horse statues, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, right? Um, And, and, you know, Kansas City actually um, has a lot of Confederate monuments, and you really wouldn't think that um, upon, like, just first seeing Kansas City, but this was very much uh, bushwhacker country. Right. You know, very much, you know, roving gangs of pro-slavery people. Um, Missouri was one of the last states to give up slavery, and, you know, we had such a contentious... It was also so contentious because of the of the blood of Kansas and and you know how they were trying to make uh, Kansas a slave state and the bushwhackers would go in and stuff the ballot boxes you know et cetera et cetera mm-hmm. um, as well as you know obviously the horrific violence that they were instituting upon you know people and you know especially black people and lynchings and et cetera so we have a lot of that Civil War history here we have a lot of um, uh, the Battle of Westport was one of the biggest battles on the side of the Mississippi. And one of our most popular bars in our, I guess, our entertainment district, uh, actually, there were uh, slaves that were kept and sold out of the basement. It used to be an auction house for slave or for enslaved people. Wow. And so uh, just recently, a few days ago, I wasn't able to be there because I was at work. But the um, groups in our town went and they actually burned like a Conestoga looking wagon in front of Kelly's. And uh, chained themselves to the front of Kelly's and said, you know, this is history that we have to confront. Mm -hmm. And it's true. And so we also had another Confederate memorial that was taken down last year after it was uh, last year or the year before after it was vandalized. Uh, It was from the I think the Confederate Daughters of America or something like that. But we have a huge cemetery here that also has a lot of Confederate soldiers. So there's like a huge Confederate memorial to those soldiers in the cemetery. Mm -hmm. And I believe that this fight is going to be fought on all fronts. Mm. So when we look at representation and we look at the people that we see that are held up in in these glorified states of, you know, being in huge statues and being in, in these gigantic paintings and like, oh, this is historical. You know, we don't see brown faces. We don't see brown people. We don't see black people. You know, we mainly see white folks that also were, you know, participating in the destruction and traumatization of black and brown people. And so I remember growing up as a kid and I wanted to be an actress and that was like my big deal. Like I really wanted to act and, and my mom who very much did not want me to be an actress Mm. actually had her argument laid out for her already. And she was like, well, what kind of parts do you think you're going to get? You know, how often do you think you're going to work? You know, they give all of those things to white people. And she was right, you know, and especially at that time she was right. And so Uh, I never saw anybody on TV that looked like me. I never saw anyone uh, in books that looked like me. I think like Sesame Street was like the most multicultural thing that we had on TV. And I definitely watched that. But like other than that, you don't really see brown and black people in the mainstream media, at least definitely not to the um, extent that you see uh, white folks in the media. And so uh, when we look at representation, we have to look at it from all angles. What are the examples in books utilizing? Are they using all white faces? Um, Are they using all white models? And that extends to our public monuments. 
Are we only honoring those people that are history that has been written by, you know, white folks that they want to remember for doing great things? Or can we also get, you know, some statues for, for folks like us that have also done great things that just have not been recognized? So yeah, I think that it's, uh, I understand how, yes, our ultimate goal is we are tearing down these systems that don't serve us, Mm -hmm. that have been, you know, created specifically to not only not serve us, but to traumatize us and to keep us in perpetual poverty and uh, incarceration. But yes, we're also removing the traces of it. And tearing down monuments has been something that humans have done since the dawn of of humans making monuments. And so... um, (laughs) you know, as culture changes, and as we realize, like, what sort of representation we're putting out there, I think it is important that we take down these statues. And I do think it is important, because those statues just carry with themselves a sense of esteem, you know, I want to aspire to be that. And, you know, why would you make a statue of some, you know, a terrible person um, that you don't want people to actually aspire to be, you know, we just create these monuments with a, a really, nostalgic and romanticized view of the past and like oh he you know brought himself up by his bootstraps yada yada and it's like well no actually he enslaved hundreds of people in order to make this happen (laughs) right so i am i i'm all for the the complete scrubbing (laughs) of systems and monuments and and what i feel like is like incipient in the way you've said that like the complete scrubbing is of course this sense of destruction as then a process of renewal repair but then also reconstruction and you talked about you know new statues and new new monuments and new public celebrations and it feels like at least from my observational mode that these sorts of destructions are always cultivating a process of this repair and of this renewal and of providing a sort of clean to use your metaphor slate for new forms of governance and essentially like that's like the abolitionist framework i think we we talked about this in a previous episode but i'd be i'd be interested actually for you to dig in and maybe say more about like what sort of things you can envision being erected in its place and also i'll add the military tanks and these sorts of things that you're talking about as well I noticed from the protests that I've attended in California that just walking around in the streets, the police didn't really seem to care. But when you start taking down the the symbols of their oppression, things start to get a lot more dicey. And so I was wondering maybe if you can reflect on those two, sort of that little bit of a, a sketch of a question. Yeah, absolutely. So what's really important to human beings is ritual. And You know, whether that comes in the form of I get up and I brush my teeth and I wash my face and then I take my vitamins and then I take the dog out or that's I go on Sunday to a place and I offer prayers to, you know, a higher being that I believe in. Mm -hmm. Whatever that is, ritual makes people comfortable. Right. Ritual provides relief. It's anxiety releasing. And I believe that the ritual of taking these monuments down is important because it is symbolic. It does let us let go. It does let us see an actual physical instant gratification type change. Mm. And, you know, if you've been in the activist world for any stretch of time, uh, you know that instant gratification is not something that we get very often. (laughs) Like this morning, they just, a federal judge just ruled that the Dakota Access Pipeline is going to be free of oil, pinning the the survey as of uh, August 5th. And, you know, I was at Standing Rock twice in 2016 and, and 2017. And like, we waited a long time to hear those words, you know, and I just heard it while I was driving and, and immediately started sobbing because it was such a release to just 
hear the words that it was going to be stopped, that we had done it, that we could claim a sense of victory. Even though that victory is not, you know, the winning of the war, it's definitely a decisive battle win. And so it's that ritual of actually seeing something physically happen and actually having it become reality that is so important. And it's important because it gives people hope. Right. And without hope, people don't function very well. Mm-hmm. We just don't. <laughs> <laughs> right. And conversely, like putting up the statue in the first place or this history of of white terror, of, of race riots, you know, like we call it terror, right? Because it is about instilling a sense of fear and a sense of impossibility in order to then, you know, symbolically condition what they view as even possible to do in the first place. Right. The question I wanted to to ask next and kind of bring this conversation to abolitionism in general and abolition as a multifaceted approach to changing everything from symbolism to sites of instilling police logic in people, to police themselves, to the alternatives of police that we want to build instead. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's so comprehensive and it's so interesting to me that it starts from affirming the value of black lives in particular to then affirm the importance of doing all of these other particular things at the same time. And so I'm, I'm wondering how you first became interested in prison abolitionism, how that journey kind of has been for you. And obviously then what the experience is like now seeing it so in the mainstream and being in this position where you're literally running for Congress. Yeah, so things like taking down the statues um, is, like we said, you know, it's a, it's a good symbol. But what hasn't happened yet is the actual removal of those systems, right? So, like, right. we can't have one and then not have the other. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we just take down statues and then a lot of people are like, oh, we're done, you know, we're good. Right. No, we have these entire systems that we need to... Uh, eradicate and we need to build something new. And I first became interested in uh, or aware of prison abolition. Um, I think I was 15 or 16. I read a book called In the Belly of the Beast, and it is written by someone who is basically uh, incarcerated for their entire life, starting from a juvenile, very young age, uh, and then working their way up to the adult prison system. And then and, and they hadn't ever really done anything except for be a child that no one wanted. And instead of the foster care system, they threw him into a juvenile detention center. And then that's where he grew up. And so when he got out at 18, um, he was pretty much immediately right back into prison and then, you know, served several prison terms and then was eventually found, well, quote unquote, found in his cell uh, after having completed suicide. That's uh, been quite a... uh, a popular way to uh, pass away inside of a jail recently. So so that's what really got me started into it. And it was like, and, and I've also always like kind of had this, well, when I was younger, I, I had this dream that I would be a, a behavioral profiler, um, which mm-hmm. is hilarious. But <laughs> <laughs> being a bartender is basically being a behavioral profiler. So I think I completed that dream. <laughs> Yeah, you're, and oh my God, once you start getting constituent phone calls, it's, it's never going to end. Right, yeah, no, it, it's already like, I, I love it, it's, <laughs> it's all the time anyway, so we, um, but, you know, so that, it, it's a system that, um, even in our constitution, it says that, like, slavery is legalized in terms of imprisonment. Right. And the fact that that even exists 
is completely in contrary to a free society. <laughs> um, we have not abolished slavery. It still exists. And the fact that they use uh, for-profit detention centers, for-profit prisons, and then allow corporations to come in and profit off of the labor by prisoners when they are paid pennies for their labor, if at all, mm-hmm. how do we not see that this is just a continuation of the former system? It, the system has evolved. And so the system is no longer, we have uh, human beings that are enslaved out in the open, and you all know that we do. Now we have human beings that are enslaved in secret places that you cannot go into, and we can basically do whatever we want to them, and there are no repercussions. Right. And we make money off of it. Right. Yeah, and um, <laughs> something um, that you said about the book In the Belly of the Beast is so kind of interesting. And I mean, one observation that one could make about the story is that, as you said, like their only crime really was being born into a world that had not created space for them. There was no childcare infrastructure for that person. Jobs are not created with people who are in those situations in mind. But what are created are systems of slavery and subjugation and prisons and forced labor and all of these things that we use to kind of bracket away and say that they're not really happening because these people have lost their humanity by breaking the law, basically. Um, and it's it just it makes me think so much about um, about the approach of of abolitionism as seeing as as seeing all of these other things that are co-present with prisons that aren't prisons that are nevertheless working in tandem to create the world where that person has nobody to take care of them. Right. No space to exist except as somebody who's, you know, condemned to die for all the system cares. And, you know, the important thing is that that's planned and that in a lot of ways, all of these other jobs that that have been created to exclude that person, the planning of those jobs and the investment decisions that create that economy, that... MMT would say is a public right because money's a public utility, but that we've just given to these private investors just to say, here, you can include the people that you want to include, and we're going to have this prison system to keep the people that you exclude from bothering you. They're all working in tandem. And I think that that's is so interesting for abolitionism now, because the kind of concern trolley question that people always post to abolitionists is what will you do with all of these people who are currently in prison now? Where else will they go? And when they ask that, looking around at an infrastructure that exists in the context of prisons and exists to uh, reinforce prisons as part of one holistic infrastructure. Right. And, um, you know, the reason that we haven't had the abolition of prison systems is because they are economically successful. Right. And they are highly economically successful. They make people tons of money. You know, you just need to look at the numbers for like how much they produce, how much uh, goes into, you know, maintaining these facilities, how much goes into hiring people, how much goes into, you know, how much per prisoner they are paid. Um, and we're also seeing this, you know, with the detention centers and they're making a huge profit. Right. And so incarceration has never been about the determinant of crime. It has been about 
the almighty dollar. And how can you put people into a forced work situation or into a forced uh, incarceration situation where you're receiving money for that person if it wasn't, you know, economically profitable? And so that's why we need to, you know, immediately take out any for-profit prison or detention center. It just needs to be federally barred within our within the world, you know, but, um, you know, what we can control within our country. And, and I think you said it very succinctly that these people have, quote unquote, lost their humanity in society's eyes. And there is a huge stigma that surrounds people who have done time. And mm-hmm. when they come out, they can't find jobs, they can't find housing, you can't do this. In some most areas, you can't vote. And so you are releasing someone who is not able to fully participate in a society So why would they care about that society? And that's why you have such high recidivism rates, because there is no place to go. There is no alternative. If there is an alternative, it's overwhelmed and overworked, and there's not enough resources. And so what are people supposed to do to survive? So when you look at actually reducing crime and actually reducing violence, a lot of it has to do with mental health. Mm -hmm. And if you look at areas that are high crime, a lot of times you have a lot of traumatized people who have been abused and you have a lot of people who have post-traumatic stress disorder that don't know that they have it. You have a lot of people with anxiety, you have depression, uh, because these are the things that poverty creates. These are the things that police brutality create. This is not just some sort of like, oh, well, this magic happened over here, and that's why these people don't have depression and anxiety to the levels of the people over here. And it's like, no, it's a poverty issue. And so when you force people to live in poverty, and I mean, this idea is as old as as St. Thomas More in Utopia, society creates a thief and then punishes him. If you make it impossible to survive legally, people are going to go outside of the law to survive. You know, that's the highest law of all is survival. You know, that's what we're entirely here on this this planet for. So when people take away those ways to survive, a, a way to provide for your family, a way to know that you don't have to live in the constant fear that your living situation is going to be taken from you, that your vehicular situation, transport uh, situation Uh, Your family won't be taken from you. This entire system is built to cause fear and therefore anxiety. And then you just have a lot of traumatized people who need help. So if you don't have that system in the first place and you don't have the police brutality and instead you have a, a community who takes care of each other, you start to see that, you know, start to go down. Obviously, we're going to have to change this entire society for brown and black people to feel entirely safe and able to grow and thrive. But we definitely have to look at at the prison system as something that is causing a lot of those factors. And instead of being uh, the quote unquote solution to the criminal problem, it I mean, everybody goes into prison and comes out a better criminal. <laughs> like they do. <laughs> and a lot of my friends have done time and like a lot of our employees on the campaign have done time. And, you know, I talk, I've talked to many parole officers and been like, you know, so-and-so does a great job. We love them, you know. And it's just really giving people a chance and allowing them to learn for themselves and to grow and to know that they aren't going to be immediately shunned from their community because they have not led the best life, quote-unquote. Um, or they made decisions that they were in situations that they had to make these decisions, you know. So it, it getting rid of the stigma and the shame around doing time is really important for us to begin to to heal and to look at it differently. Because, the you know, when you're a kid, it's like 
cops are good, robbers are bad, robbers go to jail and they deserve it. Mm -hmm. And so we grow up with that mindset that, well, if you've done time, obviously you did something to deserve it. Because if we were to sit here and say that there's actually a flaw with our justice system, that scares the crap out of people. You know, uh, mm-hmm. like when you're you're growing up in American schools, they teach you that the justice system is, is uh, infallible and it's fair and there's so many checks and balances, there's no way an innocent person can go to jail. And then you start to learn that like the majority of the people in jail are most likely have not committed any crime or have committed a crime that they were given uh, an inflated punishment for. And, you know, you, you just have to look at the data. Obviously, mm-hmm. our justice system is racist. Obviously, our justice system is skewed to putting people in prison. Obviously, those people want people in prison so they can make money off of them. It's like the biggest scam <laughs> in our <laughs> society. And so, and we go along with it because we have this false sense of security, like, oh, we're safe. The police are keeping us safe. They're putting the criminals in jail. That's where they belong. They don't need to be among us, you know, other regular humans. And, you know, in a really super perfect world where uh, everyone was punished exactly the same for whatever they did. Okay, yeah, maybe, you know, there's quote unquote punishments, but like that, that's never going to happen. That's not reality. We are never going to have that kind of a system. And so we need to make a new system that actually works. And in making that uh, new system, you know, we have to tear down everything else that is not a good foundation for it. And that's really terrifying to a lot of people because, um, you know, and it, it comes to a safety issue. It comes to like instilling fear that if we don't have these cages to lock people up in, then they're going to be in your house taking your stuff and hurting you. Right. You know, when in, in reality, I think it's like, what, 2% of actual rapists are in jail? Mm-hmm. Right. Like, we walk among serious criminals all the time. And we have no problem with it until we know that they have been convicted of the crime. Right. You know, it, it, it's a multifaceted um, societal problem, and it, there's so many levels to it. And we need to take it, like I said, you know, with the symbolic or, uh, the symbology of the statues, like, we have to take it all on. Like, mm-hmm. all of this is, is our responsibility. Something you said in your answer, in your very thoughtful answer, that really... Um, really interested in is you you invoked like thomas more and and thomas more's utopia and thinking about how society is actively producing not just the systems of justice but also the inputs for said system right it's producing the so-called criminals and that really like unearths a sort of paradoxical point here which is as you suggested prisons are profitable and to really like reflect on that contradiction, like in the sense that it's profitable to lock people away, that I think that really sort of like unveils some of the the kind of macro questions that we've been trying to address on on this podcast, which is prisons are profitable because society has decided that prisons are profitable. Mm-hmm. And these decisions are ones that as you are suggesting need to be overturned like from all sides and as well the point that you mentioned about public health and mental health likewise the poverty and impoverishment of people's physical health but also mental health right the this this is all also something that is a public 
decision. And it's it's about the systemic structures of decision making and agency that exists throughout all the scales of public mediation and public uh, governance that need to be overturned. And what I love about this answer from you is that it's not bracketing any of those fights, right? It's not saying, well, we're just going to fight the police in the streets. It's not saying, well, we're just going to do the statues. It's not saying, well, we're just going to fight popular culture representation, or we're just going to fight on budgetary grounds. It's really necessitating and really foregrounding the fact that we have to fight everywhere all at once if we're going to actually abolish the system. And that's like, as you're suggesting, that's what is at stake in abolition. It's the whole thing. And forgive the a bit of uh, up on my soapbox here, but the, <laughs> <laughs> but this is the sort of th- this is the sort of thing that that really is inspiring about the sort of work that you're doing in Kansas City is that it doesn't take for granted the fact that it's the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, I I'm a, a an alcoholic, and I've been sober for uh, over seven years now. And, you know, when you when you go into rehab, they tell you something um, because you have to change your entire reality when you become sober. If you want to become a healthy, sober person who does not relapse. Um, And so they they call that, quote unquote, dry drunk. Like if you just stop drinking and then don't actually work on your, you know, your shit. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, we recognize that in that state of being a dry drunk, like you really haven't changed anything. You're just like they call it white knuckling it where you're like gripping the you know, the holds of sobriety so hard that, um, you know, you can't really let go and enjoy anything. And so I actually almost died from from my alcoholism. I have liver cirrhosis. And so I spent two weeks in a hospital where they were just like basically checking their watches to see if I died yet. And so to come out of that and to have like that that second chance of life, I, I really recognize like I am going to have to do something dramatically different, mm-hmm. radically different. And I am not going to be able to cling on to my old, you know, comfort blankets like vodka or cutting myself or, you know, uh, having an eating disorder or any of the the things that I was doing to cope. I had to learn new coping mechanisms. I had to make Mm -hmm. myself a new reality. And that reality was one in which I was sober. And and that reality is one where I cared about myself and had self-confidence and, you know, wasn't wasn't going to be bullied Um, and so that's been a a seven year journey for me. (laughs) I'm not exactly there yet. Um, I mean, I I think you're doing pretty fucking great right now. (laughs) You're running for Congress. Like Jesus. Well, well, thank you. Yeah. It went from, uh, you know, deathbed to Congress, but, uh, you know, it's like, if I hadn't created that new reality for myself and recognized that as a possibility, I never would be where I am now. Right. And if it wasn't me getting up with the intent every day to say, I am not going to drink today. And not only am I not going to drink today, I'm going to better my situation. I am going to learn something. I'm going to do something for myself. I'm going to help someone. I am going to create change in the world around me. And I actually made like this deal with myself. I was like, okay, so you get the second chance at life. Now is when you are going to complete all of your childhood dreams. And I had a lot of them, (laughs) a lot of childhood dreams. And I did every single one of them, even like the crazy ones, like running for office. (laughs) (laughs) Right. This is like literally the last thing on my childhood dream list that I I am crossing off. And I didn't even think this was going to be possible seven years ago. I was looking through my, uh, 
my journal and it like was saying like I listed all my childhood dreams I wanted to do and off to the side there is run for office real small probably never gonna happen in parentheses underneath it (laughs) (laughs) but if I hadn't gotten up with that intent if I hadn't gotten up and you know through my actions throughout the day had that intent to create something new and to create that new reality for myself it never would have worked right that's God, that's so beautiful. Thank you for (laughs) saying all of that. Um, Absolutely, yeah. To what you were saying about alcoholism and about having to kind of make the decisions today. In a certain way, what you were calling, um, what was it, dry drinking? Dry drunk, yeah. Yeah, dry drunk. um, When you just go, go cold turkey on drinking, but you don't change anything else. When people ask abolitionists, well, that sounds unrealistic because they're only picturing just stopping doing prisons and not changing anything else. It's kind of the same thing, you know, and, and I think that the analogy works also just on the level of, of harm and abuse, right? Because that's, that's really at, at the societal level, it's, that's what it is, is like we as a society have a lifestyle that reproduces abuse and in this kind of circular way justifies it. And so we have to change it in in every single way all at once. That strikes me as so different from what the conventional wisdom has been about how you build solidarity, where, you know, sort of the idea is you have to focus on, you know, universal common denominator that is going to give everybody a material reason to be involved. Whereas what this question kind of gets at of abolishing prisons, you know, obviously the society is segregated by imprisonment. There's like tons of people who who are interacting with different parts of of the carceral system and are reproducing it in some ways, but who nevertheless can find material there in prison abolitionism for political solidarity and for being part of the same coalition. And I'm, I'm, I, I guess I'm wondering how this moment has changed your campaign, uh, if, if it has, and just kind of changed, like, it feels to me, like, discursively anyway, the Overton window has, is kind of shifting and a lot more is on the table. Yeah, it's um the things that have been happening recently, especially with, you know, the pandemic. And now we're seeing like things that we've never seen before, like the militarization of militarization of police of what we would consider, quote unquote, everyday citizens getting beat up by the police, um, getting mm-hmm. uh, put in jail, get, you know, having having the kind of brutality that brown and black people face every day. Uh, it, it finally touched white people. Right. And so I think it gave everyone like a real sense of like, uh oh, you know, because people are starting to realize just how entrenched these systems are and how we don't have to believe in them. So what we do have now is we have a lot more people paying attention. And um, that that includes like, you know, the right kind of people. It also includes the wrong kind of people, um, which is when you see like in Branson when... <laughs> Uh, everybody got their stars and bars flags and and rolled out there to um, you know to counter protest. But it, it's at those pivotal moments. It's at those like really moments of crisis and uh, that can come moments of catharsis. Without the crisis, you have no catharsis. Um, yeah. And so it's about getting things, building things to that point of crisis where we can then have a catharsis afterwards. So. Um, 
building things to the point like we have raised awareness enough to the point that people feel safe enough to take down a Confederate statue. And it's the taking down of the statue that's the catharsis. And it's really about getting people to that moment where they are able to accept within themselves the responsibility that they have for participating in the society, the responsibility that society has for destroying people's lives, and recognizing which roots we need to cut in order to kill those things. And so those things can be systems, those things can be people, those things can be systems like the police, the the incarceration system, but also within ourselves, because all of us have inherent biases, all of us have racist uh, tendencies, because it's taught to us by the society. In order to create that kind of monumental change, we have to realize that it begins within us. Just like any societal change, it begins within us. And so I think that's like the hardest part for people to kind of grasp. But once you're in that mindset, then you act out of that mindset. Right. And and humans hate change. Let's be real. Like humans (laughs) do not like change. Like I said, ritual is comforting to us. We like to have the same thing every day um, or the same thing every week. And you see people get really angry when they can't have their rituals and and that... You know, either if they the order from their restaurant is wrong or the, you know, it, it, it ties back a lot to capitalism, too, because that that's the only way people are able to control anything is, well, I'm paying you money for it. So you have to make me happy. In a certain way, the um, like back to the idea of profitability and of revenue generation from prisons, even though they don't actually create anything, all that they do is destroy. And yet somehow, you know, there's there's money coming out of that. And then when you pull back the curtain, it's political will to to create money to build prisons. That is a ritual. Like we ritualize the money that people are receiving who are involved in imprisonment through a ritualization of profits, like we're celebrating that this is the way that the world is by the fact that somebody is able to make a livelihood off of it is is this kind of ritual of self-justification. It's really circular. Right. And, and people get mad when that ritual is interrupted, for instance, like with looters. Mm-hmm. You know that those corporations are not hurting after they've <laughs> no. had a store looted. Um, and what really makes people angry is that they see the consumer experience as a ritual. And so when people bypass that, it makes people really upset. They're like, that's Mm -hmm. not how this is supposed to go. Mm -hmm. But it's about thinking about it from, you know, a full perspective. So if you're looking at a looter and saying that person is bad because they took things, well, then in turn, you have to look at the corporation and say that corporation is bad because they had their shoes made by a six-year-old kid in the Philippines. And they, (laughs) uh, you know, paid uh, someone else to ship it all the way over here with like the gas and the oil and everything used up in that and the carbon imprint on that. Uh, not to mention the carbon imprint of their factories, and then also the way that they have used their money. If you go up to somebody on the street and be like, hey, did you know that Taco Bell just gave, you know, however many millions of dollars to Trump's campaign? They're like, oh, what? And it's like, (laughs) yes, because these corporations have made themselves political. And that's why I'm so against corporate giving uh, during campaigns and for political issues, like I take no corporate corporate dollars or corporate PAC dollars. I'm fully people funded and will happily stay that way, um, even if it means I don't have 
millions of dollars to you know mess around with for a campaign it doesn't matter um that's not the point of the campaign you talked about like this moment being in its crisis nature both for COVID-19 but then also this sort of attention the attention that these protests are getting and have gotten and the way that that attention needs to be leveraged to what you're suggesting right to really forge new modes of ritual both economic but also in this wider sense of the whole as you're suggesting and it seems to me what what's really interesting about that is that th- this is sort of an opening in in a more traditional sense not just for like radical material change which which is i think the more traditional mode of articulating how we see crises interacting with political economy and with social movements but also for the injection of new ideas into people's conscious goings on every day as you said like the change needs to happen within which is not like a isolated individual within but a more broader social within and yeah, I just I just find that so helpful as a way of thinking about the way ideas are functioning throughout our social sphere and like how that maps onto what you're suggesting is the the sort of guiding force of your campaign. And you talked about just now already the corporate versus individual donor question. Perhaps it'd be useful for our listeners if you could reflect about the status of the campaign in general and where you see it going and um, how it's going. Yeah, so obviously as a a people-powered campaign um, from a fairly unknown uh, candidate running for the first time, like I think we've run our entire campaign on like 25 grand. And, uh, you know, you're supposed to have like one point something million. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we've been really successful. And I um, attribute that to us actually being on the ground and, and us actually being a team comprised of activists. Um, My campaign manager has been uh, an activist in Kansas City for over 20 years. She's done work with everybody. (laughs) And if you, um, you know, and if you want your ground game to be done, you call my campaign manager. And (laughs) so, and it really kind of like threw us for a loop for the pandemic because we're so in person and we were showing up at people's doors and showing up at protests and showing up, you know, basically everywhere that there was something going on. And, and, you know, we're, we're still doing that obviously, even though there's not as much going on um, right now because of the pandemic, but it's really about making that human connection. And I feel like people now are so on both sides are so tired of these, you know, talking heads that don't really get anything done and end up with the biggest penny pile at the end of the day. And when we think about like re-envisioning what we want our systems to look like, that includes government. And it, it absolutely, government should be our priority of making it look more like us, sound more like us, and to be uh, having our actual interests uh, at heart. It's like if we had enough you know, Congress people that actually cared about Medicare for all, we would just have it. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be this huge fight. And so to do that, we have to continue to elect people that are going to actually fight for that kind of thing. And the thing about the presidential election, like everybody understandably was super bummed when when Bernie didn't um, get all the delegates that we hoped he would. Uh, We still need to be putting progressive people into office because if you don't have progressive people in those lower offices, you're never going to have progressive people to choose from in a presidential election. You know, in in this campaign, we, we basically had Bernie. 
And everyone else was like a different shade of neoliberal. And and I think even Bernie has his neoliberal areas, you know? And Absolutely. Unless we mm-hmm. continue to push and continue to fight, uh, we're not going to have that kind of choice. And so we really need to think about the kind of political future that we're building. Are we going to have the same thing with the same candidates and the same politicians running their mouths about the same, you know, talking points, taking their same photo ops. And then, you know, when we actually need them, where are they? You know, when our elected officials are going to the protests, they give a pretty speech, they get their picture taken, they leave, and then the police come and attack. It's like, if you had just stayed, you could have saved (laughs) so many people from harm. Right. And obviously I'm not elected yet, so they didn't, you know, care too much. But there were some instances when I had to step in and say, listen, I'm a candidate and I will absolutely expose what you're doing. And then all of a sudden they didn't want to do anything, you know. And so it's about us all recognizing our power, recognizing not only the limits, but also the outward infinite, you know, resource of power and using that in tactical, deliberate, intention filled ways. Uh, to create little bits of change, everything adds up. You know, when I was uh, doing my first years of sobriety, it was like I could feel myself like climbing, 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 and then I get to a plateau. So it's like, okay, I just got out of the hospital. I am going through rehab. Um, I need to get a job. So the next plateau is like, I have a job. I have an apartment. I am still going to rehab. The next one was, I have a better apartment. I have a better job. I'm still going to rehab. You know, the next one is like, I'm in a different spot and it's not necessarily better, but it is different. And so we're just continuing that journey. And it's all about literally being relentless and never giving up. And that's really how you create change is to be a pain in the butt to who you need to be a pain in the butt to. Um, And so now, um, you know, like in the police brutality, you know, we've always had people standing up against police brutality since the police have existed as slave hunters. And so um, now that it's becoming like more on the on the forefront, I think that's great. But I also think that like, in the media, we need to rely on things other than the media, the media is obviously controlled, you know, by a certain class. And, uh, and they're, and especially you can see this in like the artistic and the academic worlds, um, they're gatekeepers. Right. And so um, my big thing is like, why do we even have gatekeepers? Let's just create our own. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's about taking it back to that community level, about taking it back to that person to person level uh, instead of it being like, oh, it's just this big, scary thing that I can't do anything about. You you can. Um, it is going to be scary. <laughs> um, it, you may you may get hurt. You may get killed. Um, but at the end of the day, it is something that we can change and we have to believe that. And we have to do our work with the intent of that, whether it's in my campaign, whether it's in my artistic life, my personal life, professional life, whatever. Um, like even if I am not elected and I don't have a campaign anymore and, you know, all of a sudden I'm just back to being, you know, quote unquote, regular activist person. That doesn't mean that I stop. It means that I go harder. It may mean that I go in a different way, but it I'm still going. There's still forward movement. Like, even if we're not running, we are crawling. It's still forward movement. So now I think we are close to wrapping up, but I wanted to 
ask a very important question, which was how can people help your campaign? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I always forget about that part. <laughs> you can tell. <laughs> I'm focused on work all the time. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah uh, you can go to my website. We have a website uh, at www.votesalazar.com. You can find me on Facebook at Maite Salazar for Congress 2020. And if you'd like to donate to our campaign, we love it. Um, about 60 to 70% of our donations go straight to our staff. Uh, so uh, that's at secure.actblue.com slash donate slash Salazar hyphen 2020. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maite. No, thank you all so much for having me on. And I, I love your podcast and I am so excited <laughs> to be on it. And uh, and hopefully soon I'll have my own show. You can come on too. <laughs>
Yeah.